and trying to build the connection between climate, energy and security requires us to rethink quite fundamentally that nexus. Now they should get international assistance to uh, address this problem, but they probably will never get enough. This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're talking about the geopolitics of climate change. This episode is inspired by the catastrophic weather events that we've recently seen, including Hurricane Florence that just hit the Carolinas, which caused widespread damage and loss of life. And then about the same time on the other side of the world, Typhoon Mankut uh, careened into southern China and the Philippines, leaving dozens dead, millions affected, and also affected agricultural crops. So extreme weather problems seem to be occurring more and more often. Many people link these events, kinds of events, to climate change. And today we're going to look at the potential impact of climate change more broadly on geopolitics. To help us understand which ways the winds might blow, I'm joined by two experts in geopolitics and climate change. First, I've got Simon Dalby from the Balsillie School of International Affairs at Wilfrid Laurie University. Welcome, Simon. Hello. And also here is Josh Busby from the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas in Austin and a non-resident fellow here at the council. Uh, welcome, Josh. Delighted to be with you. So, Josh, let me start with you. You recently published a essay in uh, Foreign Affairs in the July-August issue titled Global Warming, Why Climate Change Matters More Than Anything Else, which is a pretty dramatic title. And in that, you argue that, that climate change indeed will have a greater impact on international politics than any other force in the world today. What are those uh, changes that are going to be so dramatic? The changes that we're observing are pushing us uh, not only average temperatures uh, higher than we've ever seen, but the uh, uh, extreme tail events are unlike uh, what we've uh, previously come accustomed to. And so then trying to anticipate what that might mean for international uh, politics uh, it becomes a, a bit of a challenge. And so what that means is uh, harder for us to assess, but it may uh, mean as we start looking out over the horizon that low-lying island nations in the South Pacific will become uninhabitable. And so the challenges then will be people will be forced to move and uh and there are a whole host of other changes that we're going to start to see uh, in the in the coming decades. Uh, challenges between states over over water, which historically we've been able to handle uh, with uh, peaceful change, but uh, it's a little unclear as we move forward if uh, our ability to establish water sharing agreements, like we've seen on the Indus River between India and Pakistan, if those uh, existing institutions will prepare us adequately uh, for the future. Simon, you have pointed out that there, in, as Josh referenced, there indeed have been climatic changes in human history over time. But you've emphasized that what's in, one of the things that's important about this set of changes is that it's driven not by kind of exogenous change that humans don't control, but in, in response to human activity. Why does that make this set of changes um, uh, distinctive? Why, why is that distinction important? Well, this is the first time uh, any particular sp individual species has, you know, deliberately set about to change its its uh, its context at, at the global scale. Um, <clears throat> what it means is simply that you know human actions are deciding the future climate. Traditionally, the argument was that, uh, well, you know, um, certain climatic features have made certain kinds of societies. They've 
given uh, certain societies' opportunities because, you know, temperate climates mean good agriculture, which has allowed prosperity, etc. The argument now it has to be turned on its head, and we have to argue that, you know, collectively the rich and powerful, um, by making decisions about what to produce and which energy systems to use and how, therefore, to um, change landscapes, um, never mind changing um, ocean uh, uh, marine systems as well, are actually deciding what the future of the planet is going to look like. Um, this is new in geological history, hence the discussion about the Anthropocene to try and highlight the change, new circumstances that we're in. We can no longer assume, as as uh, as Josh just said, that you know traditionally, you know, you had a one in five hundred year flood was estimated to arrive every five hundred years. Well, as the headlines have been saying this last week, um, we're in circumstances where we're getting you know um, five on, one in five hundred year flood every couple of years. Um, clearly, the the the, the, the stable assumptions that we have made um, are no longer uh, are no longer going to be valid for policymakers going forward. Now, the crucial thing is how do we adapt to that? How do we actually think about institutions um, for agriculture, for irrigation, and so on, um, which assume um, much greater variability built into the planning? Um, and how do we come up with protocols that say, well, when extreme events hit, who does what, so that we can peacefully deal with the disruptions? That's the new agenda for uh, international politics. And I want to get into that agenda. I want to start with um, with combining the two of the insights that you've made. Um, one is, Josh, you've talked about the fact that um, that many cases it's the poor, poorer countries, island countries that are most subject to the, these kinds of changes. And uh, Simon, you talked about these changes are being driven primarily by the activities going on in the most wealthy countries. What is the distribution of effects? Is this that the rich countries are going to do are not going to be nearly as negatively affected, and most of the impacts are going to happen um, in poor and less powerful countries? Or how should we think about that? Well, I think actually, when we think about uh, rich countries like the United States, they're actually quite vulnerable uh, to the effects because they have a lot to lose. So uh, you think about the storms that buffeted the United States. Um, last year with uh, Harvey, Irma, and, and Maria in succession, that cost more than $300 billion in damages. And as we've seen with recent estimates of lives lost in the wake of, of, uh, of Maria uh, in excess of 3,000 deaths. So uh, in, in proportionate terms, you know, the countries most affected around the world will indeed be the poorest countries in terms of the proportion of their uh, economic uh, losses, uh, in terms of proportion of their populations that are affected by these events. But in terms of uh, economic losses, uh, in absolute terms, countries like the United States and other uh, uh, countries that have large uh, uh, coastlines like China will indeed face a very significant exposure to uh, these kinds of, of events uh, in the future. I think it's it's you know it's crucial to note that 
um, some countries, the small Pacific islands and, the, and, and some of the Indian um, Ocean islands that Josh has just talked about, will simply disappear. Um, we are facing a question of international law. What happens to people when a member of the United States with all the citizenship rights for its citizens and so on is simply inundated and, and no longer has a territory? Um, <clears throat> now, for the small island nations, they are small. The population, relatively speaking, um, will fit in, in you know, an average city anywhere on the planet. The small displacements there. But the bigger question is, 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 is matters of, of sovereignty and the elimination of a, of, a, of a nation state. And I don't think we've stopped and thought um, carefully about how to handle any of that. I mean, that said, you know, the, sitting on my desk at the moment is, is, is Omar al-Akkad's new book on American war, which is a fictitious look to the future if we don't get serious about climate change. And, of course, the, the scenario there includes an America that doesn't have a Florida anymore simply because it has disappeared under the waves. Um, and I think we need to stop and think about um, the fact that there are vulnerabilities in very particular places. Um, uh, and if you happen to be, you know, Bolivia, you don't have a problem with, uh, with, with rising sea levels, obviously, because you're an inland state and you're at high altitude. Although that said, there, um, they're facing problems. La Paz has water problems, and there's a big argument with Chile about um, how to handle water supplies in, in the Andes after the glaciers are gone, because they're going rapidly as a result of, of, of climate change. The crucial point um, is that depending on where you are in the world, climate change is playing out in different ways. Um, a Pacific uh, island state will simply disappear as the, as the oceans rise. Um, but how it plays out in, in other areas depends on the specific geography um, uh, that that, that is the lo local um, situation. And that's, of course, making the, the a general answer to your question um, very difficult because policymakers have to grapple with the particular circumstances they find themselves in as they try to adapt to climate change. So this discussion sets up a question that was asked by one of our uh, Deep Dish on Global Affairs Facebook group listeners. And Jake Ekdahl asks, how can poor coastal countries like Bangladesh, to talk about a specific situation, hope to withstand the impact of climate change? And do wealthier, more developed countries have an obligation to help? So let's talk about specifics and take up um, Jake's example. Um, Josh, do you want to start with that? Sure. Coastal countries like Bangladesh, they'll have to do a lot of this on their own, which is unfortunate, but I think on some level, uh, a fact of life in the international system, which is almost inherently unequal. Now, they should get international assistance to de uh, address this problem, but they probably will never get enough. The kinds of things that they have to do are things that they've already started doing, thinking about moving people from areas that are subject to coastal uh, inundation, having early warning systems. Uh, they'll have to maybe uh, experiment with salt-tolerant um, agricultural varieties. There are a whole host of, of things, some of them pretty prosaic. Uh, others will be much more of a challenge for a densely populated country like Bangladesh, uh, new, new forms of livelihood. The extent to which international um, international assistance comes to help them, as I said, I'm just not optimistic that the amount of resources that they're going to need are ever going to materialize. Um, and a lot of it will ultimately depend on greater cooperation uh, regionally with their neighbors. Um, you know, there are strong border fences with India that make population movements, which was uh, traditionally a way that people coped with these kinds of problems, that that's an option that's um, less available to the Bangladeshis these days. And so uh, there'll be pressures uh, 
between Bangladesh and, 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 and their neighbors. Bangladesh, you know, has done uh, amazing work to embrace the Rohingya that fled from Myanmar uh, in the wake of the ethnic cleansing, except that those um, refugees were then uh, placed in very uh, vulnerable areas that were exposed to monsoon rains. And so they, they in the international community have done heroic work to try and insulate those refugees from these kinds of climate hazards. But this is the kind of uh, fundamental challenge that uh, Bangladesh is going to accept as a matter of course over time. And uh, I'm not uh, sure that the international community is, uh, is equipped or prepared to assist them at the levels that they need. I want to build on this a little bit, and, and Simon, you may have thoughts on this as well, which is one of the things that can happen in situations like this, and Josh, you referenced it a little bit, is refugee flows, people looking to leave flooded areas for places where they can live. Um, is that likely to increase the chance of conflict or or change the way that um, the international community might respond to these kinds of crises? Um, I think that the, the refugee thing, again, goes back to the point that I was saying a few minutes ago about, you know, this, this plays out differently in specific places. Um, the, the thing that uh, can, tends to get lost in, in all of this is that while climate change is playing out, um, so are dramatic social and economic changes, part of which are actually driving climate change, but they're happening simultaneously. Um, the fears about refu massive refugee flows um, has been, you know, part of the discussion, and, and it does tend to uh, um, generate a, a policy response which isn't necessarily very helpful. We do need to remember that the crucial thing to making this easier to handle is slowing down um, the use of fossil fuels and beginning to very quickly um, build energy systems that don't burn stuff quite literally because its combustion is at the heart of the, the whole problem of, of, of climate change. Um, we are becoming an urban species. People are moving to cities very dramatically. Um, indeed, I looked at some of the numbers a little while ago and, and there was large amounts of concern about refugees being driven by climate um, in Africa in particular. And Josh knows this, this, this stuff better than I do. Um, but the, uh, the, you know, when you actually then looked at the projections for urbanization figures and so on, in fact, um, when I did the math, um, comparing alarmist arguments about refugees with the total amount of urbanization that was happening in, in Africa. I mean, it turned out that, you know, all of those um, uh, refugees in, that, that were supposed to be generated over the next couple of decades by climate um, were, were less than the total amount of people that were actually going to urbanize in Nigeria alone. So people are on the move. Our economies are changing how people live dramatically. The key thing here is to facilitate um, uh, recognizing we have to go on urbanizing and changing how people live as the environmental factors, the climate and agricultural things become less and less predictable as a backdrop. Um, the real fear I have is that, that um, the current assumption about fence building and, and that fence around Bangladesh is frankly scary um, uh, in so far as it constrains movement. Um, and you do need to remember that the most basic adaptation response of any species to change climate is to move um, to places that are more congenial. 
Um, we've got a governance problem here where we're seeing um, movement as, as a threat, whereas movement is the essential response to environmental change. Most of the movements of urbanization happen within boundaries and within states, and um, facilitating them, providing you know better water systems, providing um, more flexible food systems, trying to recognize that we have to do all of this together, um, is what the real policy challenge is. Um, and climate change is making that all more difficult because the predictions about the future are becoming um, less and less certain. So often in the news, what we're hearing today is uh, repelling of, of people, of the flows of people in various contexts, whether climate-related or not. Do we see um, this issue, which you point out how important it is, is it being considered anywhere on the international agenda? Are there major countries that would have an opportunity to have an influence in this area actually grappling with this? Well, we've seen some tentative forays in this. I think New Zealand has generated some new visa classes for some of uh, South Pacific Islanders. Um, but it's a quite contentious issue at this moment in time. The international community hasn't really done very much to try to uh, put this forward as an action item, ultimately, because I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very uh, thorny one to disentangle. I'm here with Simon Dalby and Josh Busby, two experts on geopolitics and security implications of, of climate change. We've been talking about challenges that are created by climate change and ways to respond to these challenges. Uh, I'm wondering to what extent we see major powers uh, feeling like these kinds of challenges are important to them and important enough either to respond to or to um, or to cooperate over. I mean, Josh, you just mentioned New Zealand is, is creating a, a visa status. That's terrific. New Zealand's a relatively small country isolated by a lot of ocean. What's going on with the, with the larger, more powerful countries? You have twin challenges that are happening at the moment. One is the mitigation challenge of how we move ourselves off of uh, fossil fuels and move to decarbonize the uh, global economy by the middle of the century. And so there's that process of you know, the implementation of the Paris Agreement and trying to ratchet up ambition. And then there's how do we deal with the consequences of some climate change that at this point, sadly, is inevitable and that we're already facing the consequences of and how do we adapt to that? And so the former agenda of mitigation, you know, we, we all know how that is how that's going. Uh, the adaptation piece is really in its early days yet in terms of concrete actions that states are taking. I can say that in the United States, uh, even despite the uh, top level uh, you know, change in uh, politics and policy in the Trump administration, the U.S. military remains engaged, uh, not least of which is to think about how climate change will affect uh, military bases and military missions. And so some of that continues uh, in, in important ways. Simon, what do you see as the, as the most important priorities among that menu? And uh, where do you see some hope that uh, large countries, powerful countries are addressing these issues? 
I think that, you know, it's important to emphasize that the mitigation piece is, is, is remains job one. Um, getting ourselves decarbonized as fast as possible is going to make the adaptation thing a bit easier. And I think that message just has to, you keep, have to hammer home that one repeatedly. Um, and in that sense, you know, the, the, the devil is always in the detail. The recent, um, conference in, in, in Bangkok about how to actually implement the Paris Agreement, um, I sort of stumbled and fumbled rather than come up with some clear indications. Um, the convening of the next COP in Katowice in, in, in Poland, um, uh, in a couple of months' time, um, should be ironing out the nuts and bolts of how we do the decarbonization thing. And, and frankly, um, that has been moving very slowly. The EU clearly, um, and the Germans again have been, been pushing this hard, has been um, uh, ahead of the game in terms of most of the other, the rest of the international um, community on this. Um, I mean, I look to, uh, you know, leaders coming from other places to, to push this agenda ahead. What's going to be really interesting in the next um, decade or so is, is how the Chinese follow through on their, you know, um, boosting of solar and wind technologies in particular, because they've taken the lead on that. They're producing them. They're trying to, um, uh, you know, decarbonize some of their grid, not least because they're having real breathing problems with all that smoke pollution in Beijing and, 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 and other places. Um, the, the the connecting up the dots between um, the rest of the security agenda and, and energy security has been something that we've been um, around the world and terribly slow to do. Energy security has been understood as reliable fossil fuel supplies to keep the global economy moving for so long that... I'm trying to recognize that that's actually part of the problem, um, and we need to understand energy security about getting ourselves off those fossil fuels and building um, an energy system that allows us to power our cities without using fossil fuels. That has not been at the heart of the security agenda, um, and trying to build the connection between climate, energy, and security requires us to rethink quite fundamentally um, that uh, that that nexus, and we have been very slow to do that. Um, in terms of uh, leadership coming on that, well, I mean, the markets are beginning to make it clear, and in, in many states in the United States, utilities are realizing that actually um, solar and, and, and wind uh, make, make eminently good economic sense. Um, the Germans have, have also realized that with the, 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 the transformation of their economy. But I think what has become clear in the last little while is we're going to have to do much, much more on restricting um, the use of, of fossil fuels. There's a big fight about pipelines in Canada. There's a whole series of arguments about coal mines and, and coal-powered stations in different parts of the world. We need to look at the consumption end of it, but we also need very much to start restricting quite dramatically um, the use of fossil fuels. And making that uh, link with traditional notions of security has proven very difficult, um, but it's becoming essential to do so if we're serious about um, the adaptation bit um, in, in coming years. Are there are there things that could advance that case? Are there events that could happen, crises that could happen, which or opportunities available um, that could cause countries to take this even more seriously? Josh? Well, I guess the, the succession of uh, climate extremes may uh, ultimately change the demands for policy action in countries like the United States. Uh, but as Simon suggested, we can't adapt our ways out of this problem uh, solely, that we need to deal with the mitigation side. So it's, it's, it's interesting to uh, think about whether or not you know, the, the 
politics of uh, climate change as a mitigation challenge have become inextricably polarized on partisan grounds in this country. And yet, you know, there are places that are very exposed to climate hazards like Florida, where the, that's starting to change, that the dynamics of this issue are not uh, solely a Democratic cause or a Republican cause. It's just something that all Floridians have to face. And I think that their leaders of, 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 of both parties are starting to realize that. Now, um, does that get connected in a way to demands for uh, clean energy and a move away from fossil fuels? Uh, it's it's a little bit hard to see right now, but um, uh, I think that's partially a function of the need for sort of political entrepreneurs to come along and say, yes, we need to prepare for these storms, but we also need to move to clean energy because we can't simply um, – sort of fortress ourselves against all these changes if the global temperature, uh, you know, uh, is going to increase by you know, five degrees Fahrenheit by the end of the century, if not more, that's just intolerable. Uh, and so that's where I think we are at the moment of, uh, the, those are the kinds of events that are likely to be most politically salient, uh, extreme weather events, other things like the, you know, the upcoming Poland, uh, uh, climate negotiations are important, but they don't capture the public imagination in the same way that uh, we've seen uh, with uh, uh, Hurricane Florence. And Simon, do you think, do you see things that could catalyze action? The big storms, um, the Sandys and, and, and the Florences and, and, and the Katrinas don't catalyze action. It's not clear what, what will. Um, clearly what the attribution studies, as they're called these days, are, are, are indicating is that the, you know, the warmer waters over the, the Atlantic in the case of, of, of hurricanes in, in North America um, uh, and the, you know, the fact that the um, jet stream isn't moving the way it used to, which is having the perverse effect of slowing down how these storms move and hence increasing the flooding risk because of rainfall concentrated in particular places. Um, I mean, all those connections are, are increasingly being clear. Um, you know, there's an argument about, well, should the, you know, the, the, the forecasters on TV shows actually be making these connections explicitly? I wish they would. Um, uh, so that people actually begin to realize, wait a minute, um, we've got to change the, the, our fuel supply systems and we've got to change our energy systems. And if we're ever going to, 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 to deal with this, those connections are, 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 are becoming very clear from the science. Um, they may well end up. Um, driving a whole lot more litigation as, as, as cities and states start to sue fossil fuel companies. What's also beginning getting very interesting, and, and um, even I think the Shell Oil Company recently suggested that, in fact, their business model was increasingly being threatened by uh, movements for divestment, pension fund managers, and so on, beginning to act, uh, actively factor in um, uh, climate risks um, and the potential of, 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 uh, of legal action as, as part of a, um, the, the policy situation in which the big oil companies have to try to respond. We're beginning to see political shifts in places like that that may have long-term consequences. It's, it's too early to figure out, you know, where the pressure points that are likely to be most successful are. 
um, in California and had a, a, a big summit meeting, was it this week, last week, um, where it was talking about, you know, getting itself off fossil fuels by the middle of the century. Um, that clearly needs to be done. It's how it is that reporters, how it is politicians and those entrepreneurs that Josh was talking about are going to be key, tell new stories about what security means in a climate disrupted world um how they push that ahead with particular audiences is you know the crucial question um and frankly it's going to need um imagination it's going to need um people that are willing um, particularly amongst the young generation who are looking at the longer term future to say that you know fossil fuels are a thing of the past we have to think about the next economy in the future one where we're not invested in in companies that simply make everything worse as a consequence of of, of their business models that require us to burn more stuff. Um, and it's that kind of popular understanding of the need to think and act differently in the 21st century that I think is the crucial politics um, uh, that, that we need to keep an eye on. And frankly, you know, scholars like me are trying to push people ahead to think in these ways because that's what's needed um, to, to respond to the, to the new circumstances we find ourselves in. I just wanted to pick up on something that was said earlier about um uh, Beijing and dirty air. And I think it um, signifies to me an important change that we need to come to grips with, uh, that China is now responsible for something like 28% of global greenhouse emissions, and almost twice as much as the United States. So uh, what happens in China and increasingly wider Asia with the rising emissions in India are going to be more central to the climate challenge going forward than anywhere else and so you know we can surmise about what will change uh um, american attitudes here uh, or in the wider north american um, context but really the future is in asia and there uh air pollution may be a more potent driver of change uh and policy momentum than climate change Right. Because uh, all of the rich people in uh, Delhi and uh, in Beijing are breathing the same air as anyone else, save in their homes when they have air purifiers. But when they're out in the world, they experience it just like everyone else. And that uh, is uh, a driver of, of political change because the middle classes will not put up with not being able to have uh, their children go out and play outside. And so I think that um, is an important realization for those of us who care about this mitigation challenge is trying to help use the air pollution angle as a way to uh, develop air pollution policies that uh, generate co-benefits for climate change. So you reduce air pollutants from coal that delivers human health benefits and uh, as a consequence also uh, generates uh, reductions in greenhouse gases. But it's not the other way around. They're not doing it necessarily to address climate change. They're going to be doing it to address the imminent uh, human health needs in their uh, part of the world because estimates from uh, uh, medical professionals suggested that uh, the health effects of air pollution were cutting off as much as five years off of people's lives in northern China just a few years ago. And they've already uh, started to uh, turn that around. Uh, so I think that's uh, going to be a more potent mechanism for helping uh, the world move away from fossil fuels, which is uh, going to be the air pollution uh, agenda. 
So I want to thank you both for really a, an important conversation. And, and I like the trajectory of the conversation in that it pointed out the connections between large-scale planetary changes, geopolitics, and brings right and brings it right back down into the lived experience of individuals. And these are deeply linked together, obviously, in this in this issue. And it is going to be those linkages that are going to be key to what the future holds. So Simon Dalby from the Balsili School of International Affairs. Thank you for being here. You're welcome. Josh Busby from the LBJ School of Public Affairs. Thanks for being here. Thanks again. And look forward to talking to you both in the future. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Deep Dish. As a reminder, the opinions you heard belong to the people who expressed them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like the show, please let us know by tapping the subscribe button so that you can get each new episode as it comes out. If you think you know someone who would benefit from today's show, please tap the share button and send it to them as well. If you have any questions about anything you heard today, if you want to submit questions for upcoming guests and episodes, please join our Facebook group, Deep Dish on Global Affairs. This episode of Deep Dish was produced by Evan Fazio. Our audio engineer is Andy Zarnecki. Our research associate is John Cookson. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish.